we're actually going to begin a series next week, The Search for Serenity. Um, the Serenity Prayer, there's actually a longer version. And what we're going to do, we're going to work our way through the longer version week by week. Um, God, give me grace to accept with serenity the things we cannot change, and it goes on from there. Um, we'll start that next week. Today, we're finishing off a series. We're talking about words where shades of meaning are lost in our Bibles when words are translated from Greek and Hebrew to English, and we're trying to recover some of the lost meanings, and we're looking today at confession. The word confession literally means to say the same thing. It comes from two words, hamalageo. Hama is the same, like homogenized milk, it's all the same. Legeo is the word lagos, the word. So when you put them together, same word, it's to say the same thing. And that's what confession means, to say the same thing. It could be applied uh, just secularly to plead guilty before a judge or praise a head of state. Normally, confession was something you did publicly. So when they said, praise Caesar, and there was a parade going down through the middle of a street in the Roman Empire, they would say, call out to Caesar, praise Caesar. You didn't do it inside, you did it outside. Praise Caesar. It's a public acknowledgement. And to confess sin then, and that's what we're going to think about, is to say what God says about sin. So we have to deal with a couple of questions. What does God say about sin? And we'll talk about that because confession is to say the same thing. So in order for us to be able to do that, we need to understand what God says so that we can say the same thing that he says about sin. And then we're going to talk about what happens when we don't believe what God says. Um, so what does God say about sin? Uh, again, confession means to say the same thing. Um, look what it says. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but in the New Covenant, God clearly states what his, what he says about sin specifically. Look what it says. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer Will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. What the new covenant does most clearly, it establishes with God's attitude with respect to the sins of those who are his followers. And we find the same thing in Hebrews chapter 10. This is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And when the, where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any, any sacrifice for sin. So we ask a question then. What does God say about sin? And again, in order to confess, we've got to know this. We've got to be pretty clear about it. And he says a couple of things. Literally, when it says, I will forgive their wickedness, literally what that says is, I will be helios to their unrighteousnesses. Helios is a Greek word. And what it means is cheerful, merciful, 
favorable. I think, and, a, and a, a, a one I threw in there, non-reactive. And I think that's what it means when it says in the New Covenant, I will be, I will forgive their wickedness, literally what it means. I will be helios to their unrighteousnesses. And then it means that God is non-reactive. So he doesn't frown, he doesn't get angry, and that's what he would have us believe. He says, I will remember your sins no more. We kind of put that, another way to see that is that when we, when his children sin, what God says is, I am still in you, and I am still with you. God is still ahead of you, guaranteed. That's what God says about our sin. I was raised in the Catholic Church. I went to confession on Saturday afternoon so that I could take communion on Sunday morning. And that was my pattern growing up. When I went to the University of Pennsylvania, I learned that by placing my faith in Christ, my sins could be forgiven once and for all. And so I did. I kind of accepted forgiveness by believing in Jesus. Before long, I learned it was a little bit confusing that although my sins were forgiven, I still, I was taught that I still needed to confess them in order to experience and receive forgiveness. And that was confusing to me because I had grown up doing that. And I thought that I was entered something different where my sins were forgiven. And then was told that I still had to do that. So it really does raise a question, doesn't it? Do we need to confess our sins in order to be forgiven? That's a good question, isn't it? And that's what, that's what we'll talk about. There's a, an article in your worship folder um, from the Case for Grace. I'm just going to read that. And if you want to take it out and read it along with me, it's a front and a back. And um, three million and one, three million and two, <laughs> is God counting your sins? From Romans 4, 4 through 8. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. A Christian is a person whose sin the Lord will never count against him. The person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works does not need to worry about the sin total because God isn't counting. We tend to envision God as a banker who manages a forgiveness fund. When his children sin and ask to be forgiven, God withdraws enough forgiveness to cover the debt. Since God does not need to forgive sins that he does not count, this transaction, I, I, I believe, is unnecessary. 
when a Christian sins, God does not withdraw yeah, forgiveness in order to cover the debt. According to this passage, God doesn't count these sins in the first place. There is no debt to cover. Companies that are failing have two bankruptcy options. Chapter 11 bankruptcies provide temporary protection from creditors. Companies are given time so that they might once again turn a profit. Chapter 7 bankruptcies provide permanent protection from creditors. These companies have no hope of ever turning a profit. What type of spiritual bankruptcy does God give? When it comes to spiritual debt, does God offer chapter 7 or chapter 11? God's forgiveness is chapter 7 protection. He justifies the wicked. God does not give forgiveness to good credit risks. He does not offer temporary protection. He does not set up a repayment schedule. He forgives the sin. He cancels the debt. From the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished, John 19.30. This same word, tetelestai, actually, was used when debts were paid off. It meant paid in full. So when you, uh, and when you were done, when there was a debt and you were clearing it, what they would write is a word, tetelestai, across it. Paid in full. The debt's covered. That's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus cried out from the cross. Transgressions are forgiven. Sins are covered, paid in full. God does not tell believers in Jesus Christ to trust him to forgive sins. God tells believers in Jesus Christ to trust him, not to count them in the first place. Hmm. Forgiveness is, is at the heart of the new covenant. Would you agree with me at one level this seems dangerous to believe? Really? You know, if God, if blanket forgiveness like that, isn't that dangerous? Well, you take that for granted. You know what's interesting? From a biblical perspective, what we're going to see, it's more dangerous not to believe it. It's, it's dangerous not to believe it. Let's talk about that a little bit. Talk about what if we don't believe what God says about sin. That's what David wrote. An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For in his own eyes, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. David had an issue. He didn't understand because he had a very sensitive conscience. He didn't understand how people could keep on doing wrong things, and he just didn't get it. And then there was an oracle. An oracle is an aha moment. It's when the light bulb goes off. He said, that's it. An oracle is within my heart concerning the deceitfulness of the wicked. In his own mind, he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his own sin. The word flatter means to smooth the surface of something. So if something is chipped and gouged, to flatter is to make it appear smooth, to put some type of surface on it that hides the deficiencies inside. And what David said, he said, that's it. If somebody is busy shining 
the outside so that they appear glorious and glowing and perfect and pristine. If people are doing that, they are so focused on making the outside look presentable that they can't notice what's happening on the inside. That's it. That's what David came to discover. Um, It's not that there isn't sin, but that we can become too busy smoothing the surface to admit flaws and imperfections. Get a question. If God already has forgiven and understands, why would we brush up the outside and try to make ourselves look better to God than we actually are? Why do we have to smooth the surface when God sees underneath the surface? Uh, This is the problem, I think, that John confronts in a passage that feels confusing, and it feels like it contradicts exactly what I just said. But it says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word is no place in our life. The people, the problem here that John is confronting is that people are claiming to be without sin. This is what he's dealing with. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we claim that we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. Apparently, the people to whom John is writing are unwilling to acknowledge their guilt. That's the issue. This verse is commonly applied to confession, and it seems to suggest that if you confess your sins, you're forgiven, right? And if you don't confess your sins, you aren't. See, the problem John is confronting here is not that people are not confessing their sins. This isn't the problem he's dealing with. He's not dealing with people who are not confessing their sins. He's dealing with people that are confessing that they're not sinners. That's a different thing, isn't it? It's a different thing. It's not that they're not confessing sins. It's that they're confessing they're not sinners. If you are a not sinner, if you're not a sinner, Why would you put your faith in Christ to begin with? See, this is the problem John is dealing with. It's the same problem that David wonders about. It's it's possible to smooth the outside to say, hey, I don't have a problem. You You can get so busy smoothing the surface to admit the undercurrents. Jesus put his finger, put the crosshairs on some issues that are very dangerous spiritually, and there are two of them. One of them is judgment. What we tend to do if we want to make ourselves feel better and we have issues in our lives, we could point to somebody else and say, I might not be much, but I'm at least, I always have to pick on Travis because he's just right there and he's just such a good target. You know, I I might have my problems, but I mean, Travis, (laughs) I mean, Travis is actually a good guy. Uh, But that's what we tend to do. We can compare ourselves with others. 
to make ourselves feel better. Uh, that's one thing that we can do. Uh, Jesus put the crosshairs on something else, hypocrisy. You know what the word hypocrisy is? Hypocrisy comes from a word for judgment. Actually, there are two words that are spin-offs from divine judgment. This is called the word, the Greek word, not that you have to remember Greek word, but you'll understand why I'm pointing it out. Crino, Chrysis. Chrysis or crino, that's judgment. And what ends up happening when we are aware of divine judgment, we can do two things with it. One word, we can externalize it. The word for externalizing some things in Greek is dia, diacrino, diachrysis. And that's the word for judgment. So if we're getting judged, what we can do is we can push the judgment out on somebody else. That's one way we can do it. And we can point fingers. You know what they say, when you point fingers, you know, you've got three or three fingers pointing back at yourself. Another thing we can do is not diachrysis, it's hypocrisis. It's the word from which you get the word hypocrite. And here's what hypocrisy is. Hypocrisy is when we're taking judgment comes and we push it down under the surface. We kind of step it down and, and how are you doing? Fine. You know, and if things aren't really fine, Fine, that's what hypocrisy is. It's judgment that gets submerged. Here's what Jesus said. He began to speak first to his disciples, say, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were by and large immune to Jesus' influence. There were a few. What was the problem? And Jesus talks about it. Be aware, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, so busy cleaning the outside of the cup and dish that can't really look at what's underneath the surface. And what Jesus said, that is a spiritual problem. And that's why we talk about confession. It's about admitting and facing what we do and acknowledging not only what we've done wrong. Remember what confession means? To say the same thing as. So it's not only important for us to realize what we think about our sin. Here's the question. What is God saying about it? What's God saying about it? And that's what we have to be clear about. Underdeveloped faith and forgiveness. I want you to listen to me. Underdeveloped faith and forgiveness is a problem, and it has consequences. What it says, it leads not just to self-righteousness, but to unrighteousness. You know what I'm saying? Underdeveloped faith in forgiveness. God says, I will be helios to your unrighteousnesses, and remember your sins no more. If we hear that, and all of us struggle, but to the degree we struggle with it, and we don't really embrace it, then that can create self-righteousness issues and unrighteousness issues. Look what this verse says. Peter talks in Second Peter, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious 
and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It says something interesting here. It says God gives us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. And it talks about his own glory and excellence. He has given us his very great and precious promises so that by them you may be partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world because of evil desires. Do you want to be able to be, do you want to be a person who does more of what God wants you to do? Do you want to be a person that does less of what God doesn't want you to do? Here's the deal. Divine promises is the root. That's what he says. By these promises, he enables us to participate in the divine nature, to do the things that God wants us to do, and to escape the corruption in the world caused by desire. He goes on to, yeah, the, the promise, that's the power he gives us is channeled in promises, so the God's promises are the building blocks of faith. When it comes to confession, we have a problem. Our gaze and our glance gets turned upside down. We end up gazing at our behavior, and we glance at God and his promises. Again, we end up gazing at our behavior and our promises and glancing at God and his promises. Here's the question. Where is the power? Are you going to experience God's power by gazing at your promises or by gazing at his? It comes from gazing at his promises. You know what that means? We've got to get our gaze and glance right side up. We've got to, now again, look at what you've done, look at what you've thought, look at what you've said, but don't gaze at it. Glance at it. If you want to gaze at something, gaze at God's promises. Um, that's what he says. Look, and he goes on in this passage to talk about if you have a foundation where your faith is in his promises, it's, then it says this, um, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. I want you to take a look at that list. I want you to think about the things that would be important to have in order to develop a relationship with God that would be deep and effective. Now, well, let's look at this list, okay? Um, so we got, what do we got? We got virtue. Virtue is the kind of the ability to, to do what it is God wants you to do. Uh, knowledge is certainly important. Self-control, that's a real big thing, isn't it? You know, if we're going to do what God wants us to do, is self-control going to need to be an issue? I, of course. Of course. We can't do whatever it is we want to do. So what it says, add virtue and Knowledge, self-control, steadfastness. We have to have the ability to keep on going, even when it's not comfortable. Steadfastness, steadfast godliness. Um, speaks for self, godliness with brotherly affection and love. Uh, look at that list. Is there anything missing there? 
If you think of the kind of things that would be helpful, necessary, to fuel a Christian life, is there anything missing? I don't think so. You know where those things are? These things here are the superstructure. The superstructure. The foundation, the substructure is faith. It says, add to your faith. Faith in what? Promises. Faith in God's promises is the substructure. It's the foundation. And one of the critical promises that God makes to you is the promise of forgiveness. Here's what he says. I will be helios to your unrighteousnesses. And remember your sins no more. I will be cheerful, benevolent, gracious, non-reactive to your unrighteousnesses. And remember your sins no more. Here's my question. Do we believe that? Here's another question. What would happen if we believed it more deeply? Now what would happen? We'd find virtue, knowledge, self-control, godliness, brotherly affection, love. Those things would start to well up within because they go on the foundation of faith and forgiveness. You say, well, how do you know? Look what he says in this verse. Um, if these qualities are yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You understand what he's saying? If you've got virtue and godliness and you've got these things, self-control, you're going to be effective in your knowledge of Jesus. And now here's what it's going to say. If these, whoever lacks these qualities, so if these qualities are lacking, what's the problem? Look what it says. He's so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I am nearsighted. I can kind of read the paper. <laughs> I really don't see very well at all. You know, so anyway. So nearsighted means when it's close, I can see it. Farther away, I can't see it. Can't see it, can't see it, can't see it, can't see it, can't see it. You know what he said? What was happening? These people had become nearsighted spiritually. In the beginning, they were told that they were forgiven. And they could see it. They could see it. You know, in the beginning, we learned about the promises, but then year after year after year, forgiveness became a little bit less possible to see, a little bit harder to believe. They became nearsighted with respect to the promise of forgiveness. And you know what ended up happening? Well, look what it says. If whoever lacks these qualities, the problem He's so nearsighted that they become blind, having forgotten that they were cleansed from their past sins. What it seems to suggest, belief in forgiveness is going to be the foundation upon which 
those qualities grow. What if we don't believe in God's forgiveness? It will lead both to self-righteousness and unrighteousness. Now, again, all of us struggle. You know what I'm going to suggest that we do? You want to be good at something spiritually? Be really good at confession. Be really good at saying what God says about your sin. If you want to excel in one thing, be really good at that. In fact, I, I would dare say, in fact, I, I, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, it's after I had kind of come into a relationship with Christ, and I was asking God, why am I dealing with these sins? I didn't become perfect right after I came into a relationship with Christ. Anybody ever? Anybody else? If I say anything? Anyways, so I'm saying, God, give me victory over this sin, will you? And God doesn't talk to me. I don't hear words. But what I got, this thought came in from the side of my head and not part of the side of my head that I am responsible for. Uh, and it's what it says. And here's what I thought. I didn't hear. It's more important for you to learn to be forgiven than it is for me to give you victory over sin. Will God say that to you? Yes. It's more important that you learn to be forgiven than it is for God to give you victory over sin. I'm talking to you, 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 you. It's more important that you learn to be forgiven, experience forgiveness, than it is for God to give you victory over sin. It's true. It's true. Uh, Become good at confession. Confession is more about acknowledging God's grace than our guilt. And so here's what I would suggest. Um, you know what confession is? Say what God says. So when you confess and when you're aware that you said, thought, or did something, hold that. Don't push it down inside. How are you doing? Great! Don't push it off on somebody else. Well, at least I'm not. <laughs> Don't compare. Hold it. It's something you thought, said, or did. And on the other hand, hold on to God's promises. What are those? You know what God says to you? And he understands what you did last night, or yesterday, or the day before, or this morning on the way to church. <laughs> I'm still in you. And I'm still with you. And good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. You say, how do you know? That's the new covenant. God promises to be helios to our unrighteousness. Why don't you think about what you did? Yeah, that's sin. Uh -huh, that one. You know what God says to you? I'm still in you. And I'm still with you. And good's still ahead of you, guaranteed. You know what I'm going to suggest that you do? Learn those four things. And when you're doing you're surveying your life, I want you to say, God, you know what? I messed up. I said, thought, or did that thing, and I wish I hadn't. But if I'm going to confess and say the same thing, what I'm going to need to say is, thank you that you're still in me, and you're still with me, but still ahead of me, 
Guaranteed. Can you remember that? Can you remember that? Close your eyes. Close statements. Can you think about them? Think of the thing you did, the sin problem that you wrestle with. Think about it. And here's what God says. I'm still in you. That can't make me move away from you. I'm still with you. Good is still ahead of you, guaranteed, because I promise I will be Helios to your unrighteousnesses and remember your sins no more. I promise. Let's believe what God says. Let's be good at confession. Let's stand for closing prayer. God, thanks for your promises. Thanks for being really clear about them. It's hard for us to apply this. It feels dangerous. We feel like if we're not dodging thunderbolts, then there will be nothing to cause us to want to live for you. Apparently, it's faith in the promise of forgiveness that allows us to live for you. The power is invested in the promises. And as we become better at grasping the promises, the kind of things we want to produce will be produced naturally, will bear fruit. We don't churn out the fruit, but it comes from, at some point, the faith and forgiveness. Help us be good at confession in Jesus' name. Amen.